Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on the new Aleph, the Kaze cult agreed to help Soma capture soul offenders, and Aramis and Paul's gang got underway on their trip out of Pan. And now, Chapter 17, Part 1 of the new Aleph. It's unnerving how it was all so mundane. Though that doesn't feel like the right word. Alice Sukla's head tilted back as she laughed at Soma's comment. It was a pleasant laugh, one that didn't do any more to reveal her actual age than her gracefully wrinkled, coffee-brown face. Still, Soma was sure that she was ancient. One thing that wasn't mundane was how the citadel looked exactly identical to how it had looked before Ignacio's escape attempt and Soma's explosion. No splinters littering the floor of the courtroom. No charred furniture. The stone of the encircling wall looked completely untouched by anything but time. The furniture even looked weathered and worn by decades. Furniture that had been turned to ash just months ago. Right now, she was walking through the cocktail lounge that was directly below that courtroom, walking alongside her sponsor, Alashashi Sukla, rubbing elbows with the supreme rulers of the universe. She felt a complete pretender. She may have been wearing a matching uniform, but hers was plain. All the others had metal appellets pinned to shoulder loops and lapels, ribbons and medals pinned to breast pockets, braided cords hanging from shoulders, and elaborate cufflinks adorning the sleeves. Soma had a list of questions in her head she'd put together before coming today. But now she just wanted to leave, get away from the centuries of experience and leadership surrounding her. She wanted to hate these people and had come here prepared to do so. After sitting through four hours of them trying to decide how to deal with terrible situations all over the world's, Her feelings were more complex. The worlds. There were the major seven. Prometheus, Pan, Corona, Adik, Hale, Alkamar, and Jinktu. They were where 99% of Maybar's 300 million lived and worked. But there were hundreds of other worlds as well, and the assembly had to keep track of what was happening on each and every one of them. Soma had trouble handling the scope of a lot of the details brought up during the meeting, which was doubly upsetting because she was no stranger to crime and corruption. She'd been fully aware of the syndicate crime activity in Hellison. She'd investigated mob hits and heard endless rumors of crooked politicians and CEOs. She'd watched a veteran crime scene investigator of 15 years be taken away after being found out for taking a payoff to taint evidence. She'd once had a former partner who had framed an enemy of his family for attempted murder. Soma herself wasn't perfect. On two separate occasions, she'd bribed witnesses. Once to get an annoying girlfriend to stop intentionally hiding evidence against her abusive and murderous boyfriend. She may have pretended her offenses didn't matter, but her attitude had been the same as that of others. She hadn't realized it until sitting in on this meeting. 
where every compromise she'd ever heard was thrown into stark relief, but the core philosophy was identical in every case. Don't get caught. In Audic, the entire sect of a poor religious group called the Delvers had been extorted into giving up their fractions so the upper class could have more children, all using clever, semi-legal methods that left the assembly frustrated and unsure how to stop it. Then, after those people had lost their ability to have children, and their ethnicity was facing extinction, the extortionists had looked elsewhere. Proxies would recruit poor people from the four other exile worlds, meaning any worlds in the Major Seven except Pan and Prometheus, to colonize Odic, promising unlimited land and opportunity, only to then pressure them into desperation. In a tiny world called Taintsveni, Alephs and other powerful people exploited the poor and the naive. The young and attractive would be pressured into performing for sex fantasy programs, either for algin potions or for more scripted pornography. Once they aged out, if they couldn't find regular work doing more respectable acting roles, they could end up being hired to be hunted, tortured, murdered, and to fight each other to the death, only to be resurrected over and over again, all for entertainment. Clever legislation was keeping the assembly from being able to stop this also, because officially, those issues were only a minority side of the majority entertainment industry centered in Tetsveni. High-budget entertainment programs like The Lower Empire had fully explicit sexual content and graphic violence, but were protected due to their status as high art. That protection formed a precedent that then bled over to the blatantly voyeuristic programs. Three-dimensional and video and radio recordings of both high and low art from this world were of such high demand that they were smuggled everywhere and purchased by nearly everyone. Citizens of Prometheus and Pan, who were not supposed to know about the existence of the other worlds, had the highest populations and were the primary source of financing this industry. People in Prometheus weren't sure where the entertainment really came from, and, conveniently, it was illegal to tell them. People in Pan had a pretty accurate guess as to the truth, but most pretended they didn't. As far as Soma could surmise from her limited time living in Pan, anyway, Soma was surprised to learn that the partnered radio potions that allowed someone to visually watch the performance while listening to it on the radio had recently become very popular in Prometheus, but were used differently than in Pan. Apparently, the popularity of the Lower Empire had caused the demand for partnered radio potions to skyrocket, whereas before, it was only the rich and connected who used them. While in Pan, people usually went to theaters where an audience would watch the pseudo-projection together, in Prometheus, people took the potions at home and experienced the programs in a more dreamlike state that was lower fidelity but was private. The Assembly still tried to stop the more heinous human rights violations that happened on Taintsveni, but the complexity of these laws made it very difficult to form effective cases against even the worst offenders. The easiest way to arrest those people was to charge them with unauthorized resurrection of dead people, which was a high crime according to Second Life laws. 
This was one of the most horrifying realities Soma had to accept. Raising someone from the dead was a greater crime and easier to punish than slavery, rape, or murder. Over on the world of Hale, they were having trouble with the poor and indebted being experimented on to create new gene-splicing blends of human, animal, and monster DNA. Tens of thousands were suffering from cancers and organ failures, and most would have premature deaths. Soma would have had even more trouble grasping the story, especially the parts about monster genes blending with people genes, if the seated Aleph from Hale himself didn't have fangs for teeth and tall curving horns extending out of his forehead. These were just some of the problems facing the seated Alephs. Despite the godlike powers and vast resources, they ran up against opponents that were always three steps ahead of them. The fact that the worst problems were propagated by other Alephs only made the problems more difficult. Don't get caught. All of this wove a very carefully crafted motif. Soma saw that she was supposed to be humbled by all this, and she was. She saw that these powerful people were just people. She saw that they were doing their best, or that they believed they were. She saw it all and understood it all. She could see the threads behind each story. She could see the connections and how each seated Aleph's problems felt impossible, but also how each seated Aleph had a justification stopping them from doing anything. Seated Aleph Sam Akinori of Otik was standing by the doorway to the lounge, nursing a cocktail. He only had one child and had a generous number of wrinkles across his face which were probably supposed to be evidence protecting him from suspicion of being involved with what was going on across his world. Just because he didn't pad his soul with extra soul space to keep himself younger didn't mean he wasn't rich from helping others do so. Seated Aleph Tanya Mandelstam, supervising Seated of the Unusual Worlds, which included Tainsveni, was sitting at a table talking with a couple other Alephs. Soma wasn't sure how or if she was justifying the situation on that world. She told a sob story about difficulties with tracking down legal standing to arrest offenders, about how they moved quickly and hired clever, corrupt lawyers. Soma could tell she was lying about parts of it, but she didn't know which parts. Seated Aleph Dominique Ramirez of Hale, the one with horns coming out of his forehead, who was right now standing by the bar and chatting with the bartender, had animal DNA splicings. But he would likely be able to trace his treatments to a clean source, not connected to the thousands suffering from failed experiments. But it didn't matter because the dirty guys were selling their research data to the clean guys. Aleph Ramirez wanted the dirty experiments to stop, but he had friends doing clean experiments so he saw the superficial obstacles standing in his way and chose to not look past them. But all of her mistrust and condemnation of these leaders was tempered by an awareness. The people of Maybar were the ones that were ultimately responsible. They were the ones buying the entertainment and the genetic modifications and the stolen soul space. Not everyone, because... 
Boring workaholics like Soma had never even listened to the radio version of Lower Empire, but nearly everyone. Whether they liked it or not, this is what the people wanted. Long life and children and entertainment at the cost of the poor and vulnerable. Soma didn't feel separate from this, because if it wasn't for her rage over losing her family, she would have just continued to commit her little compromises here and there, comfortably ignorant of those of others, always remembering to not get caught. Soma pushed all these analyses from her mind as Alice Sukla gestured for her to follow. Feeling weary from contemplation, she followed slowly and joined her sponsor over at a booth in the corner. A girl in a cocktail dress, so beautiful that Soma couldn't tell if she was an immortal or just an augmented person, came over and asked what they wanted to drink. Soma asked for a stout port and didn't hear what Sukla ordered. Seated Sukla. It's Shashi, dear. Call me Shashi. Soma nodded and cleared her throat. The woman's soft accent was very calming, making Soma's general exhaustion turn to soggy drowsiness. She should have ordered some coffee, not a beer. I have a strong feeling that if I don't do this offender roundup properly, I will end up as one of the subjects of these meetings and in one of those prison worlds they talked about. Alice Sukla, Shashi, laughed at that. Oh, don't worry about that. Even if it came to that, and it won't, they'd throw you in stove. And that's on hell. You'll do fine. And didn't you hear? You've been cleared of all your indictments. Soma frowned. What do you mean? You are under probation, pending investigation. Well, I just heard not ten minutes ago. She paused as the waitress came over and left the drinks. Soma sighed and held up a hand. Actually, I'm so sorry to ask now, but could you bring coffee instead? Sure, the girl said, her face beaming with joy and youth. Real youth. Maybe she was just young and beautiful naturally. She picked the beer back up. Anything you want. Soma raised an eyebrow. A latte? No flavoring or sweetener. Of course, wouldn't be a real latte otherwise. The girl winked and walked off. As Soma turned to face Shashi, the elder Aleph smiled almost as brightly as the girl. You, Detective Dan, are cleared. They determined that it was Ignacio who knew what he was doing, and you had no way of knowing that losing your temper would kill everyone in the room. Soma tilted her head left and right. That wasn't true. Well, everyone that he hadn't already killed. Shashi nodded. There will be a fine place against you for using armed force against Aleph Negri when you attempted to shoot his hand. But you did it knowing he would be fine. The only reason he died was because he willingly signed over his authorities. They're still not sure why he did that. A fine, that's all. A booming voice interrupted them. Shashi, dear, are you trying the new wine I bought? It's very good. Soma felt her stomach shoot up into her throat as she turned to look up at the dark, horned face of Hale's seated Aleph. She cleared her throat and looked down at the table. Shashi nodded to the horned man and said yes, she had. Detective Dan! Now Soma had to look up. She smiled as best she could and shook the man's huge, powerful hand. She felt like a child next to him. Fascinating work with finally cracking down on all those soul offenders. They'd like you in, Hale. Don't tolerate any sort of preference to social strata. 
He laughed deeply and richly as he patted Soma on the shoulder. I love the idea of a flat-footed lawman running the show. Did you know I used to train auditor deputies? Soma looked from him to Sashi, then back to him. I, I have to apologize. I don't really know anything about anyone, except what I heard during the hearing. He nodded, sticking out his lower lip. The deputies have to deal with far stranger murder cases than you're probably experienced with. Though I'm sure nothing you couldn't handle. Once you were familiar with our special forensics. People find very interesting ways to kill each other when they can modify reality with a stroke of a pen. Soma saw an invitation to ask more questions in the smile on his face. She had so many that she didn't know where to start. But Sashi interrupted. Bother Detective Dan another time, Dominique. She has had enough strange experiences for one day. Aleph Dominique closed his eyes and gave a slow, shallow bow to Soma. Detective? He touched two fingers to his eyebrow in a sort of relaxed salute before turning to walk off. Until we meet again! Soma was about to comment on him to Shashi as soon as he was out of earshot, but the old woman immediately dropped her smile and returned to the prior conversation. You were asking about the fine. Your key will not receive any new ink for one month. That would hardly matter. Soma never used her key pen anyway, except for food and basic supplies, which cost nearly nothing, and she'd already generated her special incentives for the Kaze cult. It was hardly a punishment. Soma had threatened to kill Negri. Negri, who had tried to explain to her how complicated this situation was, who had tried to tell her when she was in a state of rage and confusion and terror... Dominique isn't the only one who's curious. Sashi's tone of voice shifted and her eyes darted towards Hale's monstrous seated. To see how you'll handle your crusade. Especially how you'll deal with fugitives. Some will try to hide in Pan. Others will try to leave, though that will be harder than they probably realize. Soma nodded. Well, I've been able to form some useful alliances to help me with that. A sly grin stretched out across Shashi's face. Oh, well that reminds me of a favor the assembly wanted to ask. This was it. This was the reason they were letting her off easy. Soma knew it, and she prepared herself and took in a deep breath as she waited for Shashi to drop the condition on her. A casually suggested but ironclad requirement for her to let her continue in her office or to continue living at all. Shashi finally picked up her drink as a steaming mug of foam-topped coffee arrived in front of Soma. Soma sipped it as Shashi sat there holding her drink, talking instead of drinking it. There's an opportunity loose in your world. Soma frowned, putting the mug down. The coffee was good, but not great. I don't follow. Shashi smiled. A man, a fair-skinned Latino with good hair, having trouble finding him. If you're going to be out in the business of finding fugitives anyway, well, might as well have your useful alliances. Know that this person is top priority. Soma studied Shashi's smiling face. She waited a moment before speaking. Why do you need my help? You're resourceful and experienced finding people. A good combination, considering the gamis we've sent in can't seem to track him down. We've considered sending in a full auditor to flesh him out. 
but that runs the risk of becoming an unmitigated disaster. Soma considered asking about what a GAMI was and what an auditor was. Dominique had said something about the latter, though. What's an auditor? Shashi shrugged. They police the most powerful Alephs when they go bad, but not always without leaving a mess. Why is this man top priority? Shashi took a long drink from her glass. Just catch him. I'll send a full description and photo to your key. He's probably using an alias or two. Don't kill him. Avoid talking to him, and don't believe anything he says. He's a very strong Aleph, but not very good at using his power, so be cautious, but don't stress. He always prefers to use cunning over force. Which is why you don't want me to talk to him. Shashi looked at her own drink, studying it a moment. Yes. She now knew the rules of the game the assembly was playing with her. Her next moves would have to be very precisely executed. Hey guys, sorry about the posting date goof on that last chapter. It was supposed to be March 5th, but anyway. So, after I finish off chapter 17 in a couple weeks, I'm going to do another Q&A episode, which might post April 2nd? So make sure to send me questions. I'm on most of the things at A. William Wright, not The William Wright. Don't be afraid to ask me anything. Ask me what my favorite tea is. I don't know. But it would probably be best to ask me questions about Maybar stuff. So do it. Throw them at me. Don't hold back. And now let's get back to the show. Paul was freezing. It was one in the afternoon, but it was dark and gross at Chrysoprase's northern edge. He'd been living in Hemstock all winter, so it wasn't the cold itself that was the problem. The problem was that the air was just above freezing, and it was raining. The scattered houses and businesses out here had steep roofs keep snow from piling up, but that was an unnecessary feature at the moment. It was unnerving to be standing next to Liamhan while she, or it, was turned off. Just a huge mechanical cat chilling by some trees, dripping with rain. It almost looked like a scrap metal art sculpture. An art sculpture with bags and boxes strapped all over its shoulders and hips and saddle. Aramis was nearby, pacing, constantly looking south into the city. Apparently their rice people were among the deserters. So she'd had to send Jules and a couple of his friends back to a market she'd passed on her way to the rendezvous point. Fortunately, or unfortunately, Milton hadn't yet showed up with Aramis's last-second addition to the group. They would have wound up waiting anyway. Ah, here they are. Aramis ran toward a group of not two, but seven people coming into view from around a stand of evergreens. Paul followed at a distance. He saw Milton, plus a tired, slightly chubby woman with a cherub-faced young man walking alongside her. And behind them were a few others, all of them looking like they were in their 50s, but in excellent shape. Sorry, boss. Milton shook his head. She wouldn't come without him. 
These are friends of mine. The lead woman's voice was very clear and stern. And they're part of the deal. Aramis frowned at them. Then she sighed and walked off toward a clearing a hundred meters or more down the road where most of their people were waiting. We're leaving soon, so get ready. Paul watched her a moment, then jogged up alongside her. What do you think's up with those extra guys? The comment made Aramis's face turn hard. I think they're soul offenders. Paul turned around and looked at them, his mouth open. He straightened himself out to look forward as he kept pace by Aramis. How do you know? The way they look. They show signs of aging, a few wrinkles, a little slack skin, but they all still look good. It's the same way Pravid's age, only more exaggerated. Paul looked at the path in front of him. He tried to remember if Kamel had shown any of those signs. Isn't it a bad idea to have them come with us? Aramis was nearly to the group at the clearing before she spoke. I don't know. Paul stopped as Aramis reached the group, and they automatically gathered around her, expecting instructions. They numbered only about 80 now, but it was still impressive how Aramis could keep their attention without much effort. Team leaders, have you gone over your maps? Know where we are, where we're going? Eight of them nodded, a couple holding up rough pieces of security paper that Aramis had drawn the maps on. One of the team leaders, a middle-aged man with frazzled hair, walked up to Aramis and asked a question in a voice too soft for Paul to hear. He and Aramis bent their heads over the map. Paul turned around, looking back down the path at Leomhan, Milton, the mysterious new woman, and her companions. He decided to run back toward them. Milton was walking around Leomhan, inspecting it with bug-eyed sunglasses over his eyes, Paul walked up to him. Aramis thinks those older-looking guys are soul offenders. Milton raised an eyebrow as he shrugged. None of my business. Doesn't that kind of cross a line we didn't intend on crossing, though? Smuggling out people like that? How do you know all the folks me and Aubrey brought along aren't also soul offenders? Paul folded his arms. How do you know I'm not an offender? Paul wanted to have a good answer to that. I don't know. I didn't think that... A voice coming from far away interrupted him. Aramis! Aramis! We need to go! It was Jules. He was running up from the south with a huge bag of rice on each shoulder, his two friends laid in the same way, lagging behind him. Paul turned to look at Aramis, but as he did, she ran right past him toward Jules. They met halfway and Jules stopped and immediately started talking. Behind Jules, his two friends finally caught up, stopped right behind him, dropped their bags of rice, and doubled over heaving. Aramis was nodding at what Jules was saying, then she turned and ran past Paul again. She looked right at him as she did and said, Come on! He ran alongside her as she sprinted to the group and they gathered around her and Paul. We need to scatter again. Everybody meet at the second rally point. What happened? asked Aubrey. Aramis sighed. A group of people with white jackets are attacking and capturing anyone they think is trying to run away. They almost caught Jules. White jackets? Milton jogged up to join the group. He looked angry, even with his eyes hidden behind his large sunglasses. Sounds like the Kaze. Why do they care about soul offenders? They're a bunch of whiny-ass anarchists. Aubrey's forehead filled with wrinkles. We need to leave now. I know. Aramis said without any sarcasm, as if Aubrey had just given her the idea. Let's go. 
Milton, go with Aubrey's team. I'll bring up the rear with Liam Han and the folks you just brought up. Aramis walked back toward Liam Han. Everyone scattered, some more quickly than others, but the groups kept together and followed their leaders. Paul didn't join his team, which was clustered around Aubrey. It didn't take Aubrey long to notice his absence. Paul, the hell? Get over here. I want everyone to know the route we're taking. Paul frowned. Uh, I'm going to go with Aramis. Aubrey's eyebrows went up as she stood there a moment before shrugging and turning back to her group. Okay. Aramis was over by Liamhan. Milton was walking back toward the rest of the group. Paul had a feeling Aramis would be angry at him for making this decision. He decided to soften the blow by complimenting her right away. Where did you learn how to organize people like this? Did you learn it from your friend Ignacio? Aramis took a moment to respond to the question. She had been walking around Liamhan, holding one of the recently arrived bags of rice, trying to figure out where to tie it down onto the metal creature. What? Oh, no. I can't remember. Uh, maybe I was in the military or something. Are you, aren't you on Aubrey's team? Paul put his hands into his pockets. I'm not leaving you alone with that woman and her shady friends. Aramis set the bag of rice on Liamhan's head, covering up one of its eyes. Aramis didn't look angry, though Liamhan woke up and grumbled and drooped its head, almost shaking the bag free. Aramis looked like she was frustrated and pained. Paul waited for her to say something, but all she said was, We need to hurry. Normally, it's lovely here. Soma had to take Sorensen's word on that. It was the middle of the night here in Sparrow, and it was cold and raining heavy, sparse drops. She could hear the low rumble of the bare sea just through the lazy patter of the drizzle. This was the first outing where Travis had come along. Soma had kind of liked having him be her secret weapon, hidden away with the magic floating boat, working hard to sort through the evidence. But Travis wanted to get out and see the negotiations with the group. And now he was just soaked and shivering with the group. Is that where we're meeting in the morning? It's beautiful. Travis was looking at the mayor's five-story mansion built into the cliffside, balconies encircling every floor, all of them drenched. Other buildings stood along the main road and up and down the hill leading to the beach. Soma would be at that mansion early in the morning to deliver her evidence summaries and arrest lists and to ask the mayor if she needed any help with the task. That would be a much more comfortable meeting climate-wise than the one they were currently waiting for, but not socially more comfortable. Sparrow had a lot of offenders, the highest per capita of any of Pan's major cities, probably because it was mostly a retirement town. Aside from the main drag here in the city center, it was very spacious and open. Right now, Soma could only see two of the quaint cottages and little farms that were scattered all across the cliffs and plateaus looking out over the ocean. Soma saw three people walking up toward them. All of them wore medium-brimmed hats and the signature white jackets of the Kaze cult. Aleph Dan? It was a clear woman's voice coming from the one in the center. The woman stepped forward and held out her hand. 
Soma took it. I'm Erica. Where does you need some help? Soma gestured toward the mayor's mansion. The police here will do their part, I hope. But they can't catch everyone. Erica and the two men standing beside her laughed. The police here can't tell the difference between their ass and a hole in the ground. Soma didn't respond to that, though she wasn't surprised by the statement. She had a feeling the police here were moderated by the upper class. Many in the leadership might be bribed to slow the arrests and investigations. Our jobs are going to be very dangerous and time-consuming. Erica lifted up her chin. And Kaze doesn't usually follow the whims of a single leader. Soma folded her arms. You will need weapons. Erica smiled. Soma turned to Travis. He cleared his throat and pulled off his backpack and came over to stand between Soma and Erica. He smiled as he squatted down and pulled out a long, angular pistol from the bag. Its cobalt blue, brushed nickel, two-tone finish reflected the sparse streetlights as the rain soaked it. In scrolling through the weapons she could create with her key, Soma had looked up the details on these ones first because they were the ones the guards at the Citadel had carried. Each pistol had taken a lot of ink, but she'd made all of them before the assembly's fine was imposed on her key. Travis handed it to Erica and Soma gestured at it. That is a deadbeat. I'm only giving one to your cell. Travis pulled out a second pistol, stood up, and handed it to Soma. They were much heavier than they appeared, possibly because they were solid metal with no actual moving parts inside it. Erica was examining hers as if she was a child who had been handed a bloody dagger. Her arrogant confidence was gone. What does it do? Soma tapped the grip of the one in her hand against her palm. It will remove all augmentations and drain all Kesho. And knock the person unconscious. How long are they knocked out? One hour. Soma held the pistol with the muzzle skyward. So how long does it disarm augmentations in Kesho? Erica asked it while looking down at the pistol and sliding up a switch. I was expecting a bunch of fancy lights to turn on. Maybe some noises. Kind of disappointing. Travis's hand shot forward and pushed the pistol Erica was holding downward to keep the muzzle pointed at the ground, and he flipped the selector switch back to safety. Sorensen shook her head. That would not be very tactical. Soma looked at Erica. Permanently. Erica looked back at her. What? Augmentations and Kesho. It removes them permanently. Thanks for listening. Part 2 of Chapter 17 will be posting March 19th. If you want to show your love for the podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from the album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. Have a great couple of weeks, guys.